Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Courtney, it's unfortunate I have to share this, but May 31st through June the 1st marked one of the bloodiest episodes in American history. That's when the prosperous all-Black African-American neighborhood called Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was literally wiped off the face of the map. It was a common recipe in Carol of jealousy, false accusations, and a stirred-up angry white mob, and a police force turning a blind eye to the violence. And just like that, a neighborhood was gone. Now, despite many attempts to bring attention to this horrific act of domestic terrorism, I definitely wanted to cite two shows on HBO, Watchmen and Lovecraft Country, who actually dedicated full dramatic episodes to show the Tulsa massacre and all its its violence, which led many people on social media asking, did this really happen in America? And why were we not taught about this? Well, um, Courtney, I contend Americans don't like being the villain in their own stories. And many believe in American exceptionalism, which is probably uh, the explanation for why history like the Tulsa race massacre is only recently surfacing. But as horrific as the Tulsa race massacre was and is, sadly, America has a long history of racial purging, massacres, land theft, and racial exile that has rarely been discussed or redressed. In fact, Courtney, since 1863, up to the very present, there are hundreds of well-documented instances in which Black African Americans have been murdered, terrorized, and stripped of their property. And that history, though, has gone unrecorded, untaught, and purposely purged from most history books. For example, Courtney, I would guess most of our listeners have never heard of the New York City draft riots and massacre of 1863. Now, recruiting for the army began in July 1863 to get men into the um, Civil War, into the army uh, to fight the Civil War. Now, a mob in New York City wrecked the main recruiting station. Then for three days, crowds of white workers marched through the city, destroying buildings, factories, streetcar lines, wealthy homes, and then they went on to murder Blacks. They marched through the streets, they forced the closing of factories, they recruited more people to the mob, and then, get this, they set the city's Black African-American orphanage on fire. Oh, my they goodness. Yes, yes, even the orphanage. They shot, burned, and hanged Blacks that they found in the streets. And many people were even thrown into the rivers to drown. On the fourth day of the massacre, Union troops returning from the Battle of Gettysburg uh, came into the city and stopped the rioting. Perhaps 400 people were killed, and no exact figures have ever been given, but the number of lives lost was greater than any other incident of domestic violence in American history until, of course, the Tulsa Race Massacre. And that goes back to those social media discussions. I learned about the New York draft riots from a movie that's not so good, Gangs of New York, but that's where I learned about it. Even celebrated actor Tom Hanks, who has done many historical films like uh, Saving Private Ryan, and he's a part of uh, Band of Brothers, asks the question in his June 4th, 2021 essay in the New York Times, how different would our perspectives be if we all had been taught about Tulsa and other race massacres as early as fifth grade? 
Yes, I agree. Tom Hanks is on point. Tulsa included the list of towns where Black African-Americans were massacred, terrorized, and had their property and land confiscated, numbers in the hundreds. In fact, it's clear that much white wealth was built on these bloody massacres when Black African-Americans were either run out of town or murdered, then their property seized for pennies on the dollar or outright stolen. Most Americans aren't familiar with Red Summer. Now, that's the period from late winter through early autumn of 1919, during which white supremacist terrorism and racially motivated assault and murder took place in more than three dozen cities across the United States, as well, well as in one rural county in Arkansas. That's 36 cities, Courtney. Oh, my. That's just one long, hot summer. It was. It was. And these weren't just Southern towns that saw this violence. New London, Connecticut, Coatesville, Pennsylvania, Indianapolis, Indiana, Syracuse, New York, and Wilmington, Delaware, just to name a few northern cities, were among those 36 bloody cities where racial uprisings happened and Black African Americans were killed. So no, no corner of the country was safe. Now, and usually what came next was called racial expulsion. And that means the African-Americans who weren't killed either escaped with their lives or were just run out of town. Like we talked about in the Ekoe massacre, white residents, like you stated before, were free to build on cheap land or even move directly just into the houses where people have been run out of. If you take a look at the census records after these events, towns that were once either predominantly black or racially even quickly changed into all white towns and sundown towns in less than five years. And like I said, we talked about that exclusively in our episode on the Ocoee massacre in Florida. Right. That Ocoee massacre was horrible. But again, as I said before, uh, that only scratched the surface. Not only did whites get cheap land, but some merely occupied the land and houses formerly owned by Black African-Americans, taking them for their own without paying a dime. Now, what we're talking about hits close to home, too, my dear niece. Let's not forget that the town where I grew up and your current hometown, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, has its own sordid history of racial expulsion. It was in 1923 when the mayor of the town told all Black African-Americans and Mexicans who had lived in the town less than seven years to leave within 24 hours or be fined or jailed. Now, William Darity Jr., a Duke University economist who co-authored From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, said that we estimate that there were upwards of 100 massacres that took place between the end of the Civil War and the 1940s. And as you said, Courtney, they took place north and south, east and west. Now, Courtney, while researching for this episode, I was literally overwhelmed with the depth and breadth of this topic. In fact, it's so extensive, you and I are going to have to do multiple episodes on it just to scratch the surface of how whites have used violence, intimidation, and murder as tactics against Black African Americans through practicing domestic terrorism, stripping voting rights, undermining labor unions, and denying houses and businesses. Stories of this type of terrorism have rarely been told, but that silence has to stop. So let's begin our series with a story of terror and murder in the state I now call home, Texas. On July 29, 1910, the city of Slocum, Texas, would have their names added to that very long list of towns and cities that you just stated, Aunt Carol. They would be added to that list of those that would see the massacre of their Black residents. Now, some people say it was because Jack Johnson won the heavyweight championship of the world, defeating the Great White Hope. Others say it was because of an unpaid debt of a disabled farmer. Others will even say it was the insult of a black man being put in charge. But back then, it did not take much but a couple rumors for a massacre to start. Now, racial violence to the African-American residents of Texas 
was nothing strange. Um, they were used to radical and racially charged violence. In East Texas alone in 1910, for every month, for the first six months of the year, there was a documented lynching of a Black person. A documented lynching. It was, um, I guess that was sort of like the, the um, thing of the day to do. Yeah. Well, a documented lynching, not to cite those things that happened in the middle of the night with our friends in the white hoods that just would appear and black residents would be spirited away. These were mm -hmm. actually documented. They were family fun events. Bring your kids, bring your family. We're going to lynch someone. Now, these lynches were lynchings were based on nothing more than flimsy accusations. And for the most part, we eventually were found out to be lies and rumors. It could happen at any time to any person. You just had to be black. In Dallas, a 65-year-old man by the name of Alan Brooks was accused of kidnapping a white child who had gone missing and he had found. He was arrested and while hidden in the courtroom at the start of his trial, pulled by a rope from the second story window of the Dallas Sea Courthouse in broad daylight, only to be drugged and hung from the Elk Arch in the city where the fairgrounds are now. Mm. And pictures of this lynching were passed around as postcard souvenirs and nine are still in existence in a museum to this day. Texas has a bloody history, very bloody. So uh, we've heard of this lynching. Now, what about this Slocum massacre? Now, despite what was going on all around Texas, Slocum, Texas, a town 100 miles east of Waco, was thriving. Um, unlike many cities in the South, their population was, po was predominantly Black. They were surviving and thriving. And unfortunately, that sign of wealth may have signed many people's death warrants in that small city. Um, African-Americans owned the dairy, uh, many other properties, large amounts of land, and the general store. But let's get back to those two events that I kind of hinted at at the beginning of the story. The first event was an argument over a promissory note between a Black businessman named Marsh Holly and a white disabled farmer named Redden Alford. Now, Redden Alford had done some work for Mr. Holly, who gave him a promissory note that was dated to be cashed in a certain amount of time. But Alford took his time. When he went to the bank to cash the check, so to speak, they wouldn't honor it because it was out of date. So he went back to Marsh, words were exchanged, and Holly explained, hey, I dated the promissory note, you didn't cash it in time, that's not my fault. Now, by the time the story got back to the white community, Marsh was painted, uh, Marsh Holly was painted as an uppity black man who was trying to take advantage of a white disabled farmer. Hmm. Okay. Well, <laughs> that farmer should have gotten to the bank faster. If he wanted his money, he would have got it on time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, the second event is pretty much considered the spark that started the fire. And that spark's name was Jim Spurger. And the main reason he was upset was road work road work well let me let me explain at the time now most of us pay city taxes municipal taxes this was an unincorporated city and money was hard to come by hard money to pay your taxes and not everyone was rich so instead of trying to have the tax collector come around and get money they knew they weren't going to get the men in the town both black and white would be drafted to do road maintenance and maintain the roads and make sure that they were passable and safe for those that had vehicles. Every man had to do it. Now, the county foreman would pick someone to go around and say, hey, it's your turn. We all have to report on Tuesday. And this time it was a black farmer by the name of Abe Wilson. Now, Jim Spurger, I guess he felt that this was an affront to the very, you know, whiteness of his nature or white supremacy or whatever. But he felt that there was no way he was going to let a black man tell him to report anywhere. Mm. 
Now, according to author and historian E.R. Bills in his book, The 1910s Local Massacre, An Act of Genocide in East Texas, he explained there isn't any evidence that Abe Wilson even talked to Jim Spurger. It was just he knew that Abe Wilson was black and eventually he was going to come and maybe tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, it's your turn to go work. And Jim was having none of that. Another source states that African-American men had a, you know, maybe or maybe not have been flirting with his daughters. So Jim was just in a tizzy over just a lot of a lot of stuff. He felt a lot of ways about a lot of things. But regardless of what set him off, the weeks leading up to the massacre, he made it his duty to inform his white neighbors of this insult to his character, as well as that he had it on good authority that the blacks in town were stockpiling weapons with the sheer purpose of killing whites. Wow. So a lot of rumors and innuendo floating around about a lot of different rumors topics. And innuendo, fallacies, fairy tales and false truths, courtesy of Jim Spurger. Now, as he whipped everyone into a frenzy. Now, mind you, the Jack Johnson boxing match has had people attacked. Uh, lynchings. Another man was lynched in Cherokee County a ways over. So things were bubbling. It was the perfect environment for Jim to stir people up. So perfect that a group of white men found a young black girl by a creek and pretty much dunked her head repeatedly underwater trying to drown her until she would admit that there was a black uprising. So imagine being a little girl by yourself and these adult men, you're going to say whatever it takes to get away. Talk about terrorism at its peak. <laughs> terrorism at its peak with the children now once they got this word on the authority of this scared little girl and jim spurger and his lies white citizens began calling for help from family and friends all around anderson county you know the little girl said they were going to kill us jim spurger had this problem um the other disabled man had this problem they're going to get us they're going to get us now fathers and husbands starting around july 28th were hiding white women and children in churches and schools as the white men began to stockpile weapons whiskey and ammo Whiskey, I guess, a, the courage liquid. The, cur the courage liquid of choice. Now, as word spread of what the white men had been planning, District Judge Benjamin Howard, B.H. Howard Gardner, remember his name, he'll be important later, knew that this was a deadly mixture. And he knew what could happen if this brew continued to swirl. So he tried his best by to impose a court order that closed all the saloons, gun stores and hardware stores that he could find but it was too late the massacre had already begun hmm. so he was too late with the edict people had already stockpiled their weapons and yeah, it was the, the white people it was the white people now the violence began on the morning of july 29th when three black teens charlie wilson cleve larkin and lusk holly who was related to marsh holly were attacked now, here's Charlie's firsthand account from the Fourth, Fort Worth Star and Telegram. We were going to feed our calves and attend to our livestock. We had gotten 500 or 600 yards from my grandmother's house when we were fired upon by several men, two of whom I recognized. They did not say a word when they fired on us. They used shotguns and Winchesters. There were six or seven men in the mob. Now, Cleve Larkin was killed. Charlie was wounded, but Luz Colley escaped his first encounter with the mob unscathed. Later that night, Lusk and his brother Alex, along with a friend, tried escaping on foot to the town of Palestine, but instead were met with 20 armed men in the road. Mm, this time, two, two against 20. Two against 20 two against 20 armed men mm. now this time lusk was wounded and his brother was killed his brother alex now for the next 16 hours mass hysteria gripped the city as white men in some groups as large as 50 killed every black man woman and child that they saw 
The elderly were killed, cowering and holding each other in their homes. The young and able-bodied were shot in the streets. Those that were able to flee to the woods were followed and most lost their lives with bullets covering their backs. And those that got away lost their property, wealth and businesses, only escaping with their lives and what they could carry in their hands. Horrific. This, that had to have been a horrific scene. Now, a lot of times in these stories, we don't hear about the Black community fighting back or taking up arms to defend themselves um, or their property or families, but which, which they had the right to do because they were being attacked. So I want to highlight one small side story, which was collected by E.R. Billis for his book. It was an oral account that many say have, might have ended the massacre in its tracks. There were two African-American families that had banded together, the Saddlers and the Barnetts, to fight off the mob that they had been warned was heading straight for their farm. Now, as the, the mob approached, they realized that they did not have enough firepower or men to stop what was coming, but they did have a secret weapon. Hmm. Now, once the mob was in earshot, the Barnett and the Sadler family made it very, very clear that hiding somewhere in a very high perch in the barn was a man by the name of Deaf and Dumb Gus, which was a, a cousin and an uncle. Now, despite many of his health conditions and mental challenges, Gus Barnett was known to both white and black residents of Slocum as the best shot in the town who rarely ever missed oh the secret weapon gus all right now the white mob not knowing knowing that about gus but not knowing where he was uh, knew that they did not stand a chance if gus was somewhere trained and ready to shoot them from his high perch so ultimately the saddler and barnett family believes that this is what ended the slocum massacre because the men would have to back away from the farm. They did not want to turn their back on that barn because they did not know where Gus was hiding. Now, as much as I love that stand up and cheer moment that would fit right in in any movie, that retreat on Barnett and Sadler's property did not change the fact of what happened pre in the previous hours of the massacre. Anderson County Sheriff William H. Black summed it up best when he was interviewed by the New York Times on August the 1st. Men were going around killing Negroes as fast as they could find them. These Negroes have done no wrong that I can discover. I don't know how many were in the mob. There may have been 200 or 300. They hunted Negroes down like sheep. Courtney, I'm, a, I'm just outdone. Sheriff Black's words are chilling even today. So my heart is racing to find out if anyone paid for this grievous crime. So let's take a break while we catch our breath. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry. See you there. Okay, we're back. And when we left off, Slocum was a bloody scene. What happened next, Courtney? When we left the town of Slocum, Texas, things were bad, very, very bad. Groups of white men had armed themselves on the word of a man named Jim Spurger, who had claimed that the black residents of Slocum were planning an attack, which sparked a 16-hour massacre. And the story of what happened traveled fast, but the first reports in newspapers like the Palestine Daily Herald, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, the Fort Worth Herald, as well as the so Associated Press told a skewed but common narrative of the time. It had been a race riot sparked by armed groups of black men as the aggressors. 
It wasn't until Sheriff Black who gave the grim quote at the end of part one of the story and special deputy Godfrey Rees Fowler uh, showed up that the truth of what happened was starting to be revealed. When the lawmen arrived, they did find very scared white women and children of the town hiding in the schools and the churches to protect them from the supposed vicious, angry black mob who was roaming around hunting down white people. However, the sheriff and the deputy began finding dead bodies and victims, but they were all African-American. And it wasn't hard for these two lawmen to understand that the story of the black aggressors was not true. Hmm. When reporters gathered on July 31st, 1910, up to two dozen murders had been reported, but local authorities only found eight bodies. Now, Sheriff Black was very clear in his interview as to why this would be. And his quote goes as follows. It would be difficult to find out how many were killed because they were scattered all over the woods and the buzzards had found many of the victims first. Oh, gruesome, gruesome. How sad for those families to lose people that way. Exactly. Now, sadly, the true number of victims may never be known as many were believed to be placed in a mass grave by whites to hide the evidence and others just out of sheer dignity for their family members picked up their own dead, carried them with them to avoid further desecration by the white mob. Well, this thing of the mass grave, that sounds very uh, similar to what we're hearing about in Tulsa, where they're digging, trying to find uh, those who were killed in the Tulsa race massacre. So I guess that's the mo of the massacre in texas it sounds like a common common you know thing that happens with these situations but there was still a murder investigation to be done and justice to be served now remember a judge gardner judge bh gardner from earlier who Mm -hmm. tried to close the saloons and do some precautionary measures well what he wanted to do was make sure that justice was going to be served and he sat on a very stern edict to the residents of his county and it goes as followed all of you are white men and all of you are southern men and it is your duty now to investigate the killing and murder of a large number of negroes say at least eight and 10 or 12 or possibly more who have been killed in the southern part of your county by men of your color hmm so Gardner was calling them out he was calling him calling them out Gardner said that the massacre was a disgrace to the great state of Texas now Judge Gardner was not playing around and he knew these cases never made it to the arrest stage even that law enforcement played part in these types of killings so he wanted to make it clear to anyone including law enforcement that if they assisted or sympathized with the mob they would face the law violence or and jail those who physically interfered would be shot if necessary Ooh, he's he's not pulling any punches here <laughs> at, at all now law enforcement officers were also further uh, warned that they would instantly lose their jobs if sheriff black found out that they were ha- aiding and abetting um the people who were a part of the massacre now the court sent out subpoenas to every resident that was still in slocum texas and those who refused that were white men for the most part uh judge (laughs) judge gardner promptly had them arrested Mm. now once enough evidence was compiled arrest warrants were issued for jim spurger his brother and several other men up to six other men a fight almost broke out when it was time to arrest jim spurger as 75 men lined up challenging the Texas Rangers and the sheriff deputies. It took Sheriff's Deputy Riley Reeves to keep it all, you know, to keep you know tempers down. He kept it all too real with the white protesters. Look, he said, we're going to open fire. We're going to use our guns if we have to. We're Ooh. taking him to the county 
jail. Wow, this story gets more um, bizarre as we go <laughs> along. Whites facing down other whites over killing black African-Americans. Boy, oh boy. All right. What happened now? Now, Judge Gardner knew this would be a hard case to get to trial, uh, but he was happy with the arrest. You know, he had hundreds of witnesses and several pages of evidence. And in spite of all of that, and he brought up seven indictments, but only two would go forward to trial. Now, I know that's kind of a defeat, but this set a precedent. It would be the first time in Texas that a white man would be indicted for the murder of a black man. No, first. Okay, so let's see what happens. But indictments are far from convictions and elections happen. And this is why voting is important, boys and girls, because you see Judge Gardner and Sheriff Black, even Governor Thomas Campbell of Texas, were all allies. They were a united front who wanted to see these men convicted for the massacre, with the first step being that the governor himself assigned a special prosecutor to the case. Well, that sounds promising. These three men have teamed up, um, unusual as it may be, but they've teamed up and it looks like they could um, make a difference. But it was election time. And with eight, within eight months, all of this would have been a dream. The indictments, the arrest, the, seek, the, the site seeking for, of justice, Judge Gardner, Sheriff Black, and Governor Campbell were all voted out. And the new governor saw it as a waste of time to try white men in the killing of a black man. So he pulled the special prosecutor off the case and all the men, including Jim Spurger, would walk free. No one would be charged. Despite all of that hard work, those men would go free and the victims of the Slocum massacre would get no justice. Once again, this sounds like the uh, issue with the Tulsa race massacre. No one to this day has been convicted or even accused in the Tulsa situation. So here we have it once again in in Slocum. Now, strangely, this would not be the last time that Judge Gardner and Jim Spurger would meet. Um, Judge Gardner was running to reclaim his space on the bench. And honestly, I think a lot of change would have come if he had won. Now, while Judge Gardner was shaking Jim Spurger's hand, which why would he do that? I don't know. Jim Spurger at a campaign event, Jim Spurger used his free hand to punch him in the face. Oh, boy. So Spurger is still antagonistic. <laughs> Nothing has changed with this guy at all. And in Judge Gardner's memoirs, he, he stated that he knew that Jim Spurger was a dangerous man and he should not have been walking the streets. But what about the victims and the families who lost their lives, families, homes, businesses? Remember, land and businesses are what Americans traditionally use to set up their families for possible generational wealth and financial freedom. And these people were pretty much either killed or run out of town. Well, we already know the initial injustices of land theft. And of course, as always, is the MO with these things. People just either bought up the land or just started living in these people's houses. Now, in 1930, which was 20 years after the massacre, uh, the town of Slocum wanted to buy a piece of property owned by a man named Hayes, a white man by the name of Hayes. And he simply had one request. I would like you to put up a monument for those who died in the Slocum massacre and I'll give you the land for free. Well, the city of Slocum said, you know what? We don't need your land anymore. Thank you. And good night. Wow. So they really didn't want this history known at even at the expense of having to lose pro valuable property and land. Hmm. Now, even though the city, state and county seemed to try to ignore even the living descendants of the Slocum massacre, neither the living or the dead would be silenced. They wanted some kind of justice. Older residents spoke to their families in hushed tones about the night that whites had just gone crazy killing blacks in Slocum. Even white residents, including one of the county's most prominent residents, a longtime state judge, Bascom Bentley, remembered hearing about the massacre in a long time, a, a long ago conversation with an elderly black gentleman. Bentley said that the man had told him he stood in the water up to his neck, 
for two to three days. And there were times that he wouldn't even scratch his nose because he was too afraid that somebody might see him. I can't even imagine what fright uh, that man must have been experiencing staying in the water that long to save his life. Oh, boy. So and it goes to show people on both sides were saying this happened. Somebody needs to do something. Now, one of the most prominent voices in the movement, and she began speaking about this in the early 2000s and onwards and starting really, really fervently in 2011, was Constance Holly Jawade. Now, if you remember the name Holly, she's a descendant of Marsh Holly, who was the man with the promissory note issue. Uh, that would be her great, great uncle. Now, her great-great-grandfather, Jack Hawley, he was formerly enslaved, he became emancipated, and became a prosperous landowner in Slocum. He, unlike his, uh, his brother, was able to survive the attack, and they went on the run and even changed the spelling of their last name from E-Y to I-E because they were that scared. Mm -hmm. Now, Constance has worked for years trying to make sure that the victims of the Slocum massacre were not forgotten. And she says that her families have her family have been hitting brick walls from the local and state historical commissions to gain recognition for what happened in Slocum. But she found an ally in E.R. Bills, the author whose book that I've been quoting and sent me on this journey to research uh, more about the Slocum massacre. Together, they formed a team to make sure that there would be a historical marker put in place to remember those who lost everything and gave at all, including their lives. Well, that would seem simple enough. A marker does not uh, in involve any kind of reparation. It just basically is an admission of the uh, incident and a recognition that something had happened. Well, Constance and those who stood with her follow that line of thought, Aunt Carol. Now, Constance and those who stood with her faced black backlash from the town of Slocum itself. Jimmy Ray Odom, the chairman of the Anderson County Historical Commission, was opposed to placing a state historical marker at, at Slocum, acknowledging the massacre, stating, and I quote, there was no race riot. It was just personal things between the blacks and the whites. It didn't fall in the line that just because you're black, I'm against you and all that. They just want a marker that shows something happened there and they killed blacks and got away with it. Well, Courtney, he's right on uh, several points, even though he didn't want the marker up. He's right. There was no race riot. It was a massacre. And he's also right. They wanted a marker to show something happened there, that Blacks, Black African-Americans had been killed. So basically, he's negating the argument. Pretty much. Now, according to Anderson County Commissioner uh, for the area, Greg Chapman, his quote is saying, it's just a lack of evidence. It's all hearsay. His argument is that since there were no convictions, the men who were arrested for the crime were pretty much innocent. Mm. But eventually Constance and those on her side um, who wanted the historical marker won the day. On January 16th, 2016, a historical marker on the Slocum massacre was unveiled. Now, in a Washington Post article, Constance Holly DeWade, who, like I said, is a descendant of the massacre itself, was quoted as saying, this most definitely helps restore the Slocum massacre to its proper place. It was being ignored, and by ignoring it, you're spitting in the face of those who died during that tragic event. You're basically saying either it didn't happen or it was not important, and it's very, very important. Well, Courtney, what we just heard about this massacre is appalling, and to hear that even 106 years after the atrocity, elected officials and uh, those who are on historic boards still deny the truth of the massacre, that's disheartening. I've always said that just because you deny history, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. 
And speaking of history denied, Courtney, there are so many more instances of this type of violence perpetrated against Black African-Americans that it's mind boggling. Now, usually at this point in our episode, we try to bring things into the present and explain if anything has changed over time. Unfortunately, that's not going to be the case. I'm going to share with you and our listeners a litany of racially incited violence. So if you're listening and would rather not hear the truth, it's time to stop the episode right now. But if you're ready to be enlightened about how America has waged domestic terrorism against Black African-Americans for decades, keep listening. August 14, 1908, Springfield Massacre. This massacre was committed against Black African-Americans by a mob of about 5,000 white people in Springfield, Illinois. African-Americans were killed and their homes and businesses were burned to the ground. When the carnage finally ended, six Black people were shot and killed, two were lynched, and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of property had been destroyed. About 2,000 Black people were driven out of the city of Springfield as a result of the violence, and it spawned a host of imitators. Whites across the country who participated in these kinds of purges would yell, give them Springfield, during attacks on African-Americans. And that that you mentioned the purge is exactly what it sounds like if you've seen those movies. The sun goes down and all crime, including murder, is legal. And this is not a southern state, ladies and gentlemen. This is Illinois. All righty. Well, speaking of not a southern state, let's look at the 1917 Chester, Pennsylvania racial violence. It took place over four days in July 1917. Now, racial tensions in Chester had increased really a lot during the war, World War I because it was the industrial boom and white hostility toward the large influx of Southern Blacks who moved North as part of the Great Migration had been simmering for years. Now, the massacre bro- broke out when a Black man stabbed and killed a white man And this escalated into a four-day violent melee involving mobs of hundreds of people and seven deaths, 28 gunshot wounds, 360 arrests, and hundreds of hospitalizations. Mobs of white rioters gathered along the strip of Black-owned businesses in Chester and attacked Black workers going to their jobs. A mob of white people boarded a streetcar and assaulted black passengers. Mobs of two to 300 white riders were reported roaming the streets and attacking blacks. Now, a counter mob of 150 armed blacks gathered near Market Square in downtown Chester, and they fired guns into the mob of armed white riders and charged the group until police dispersed both groups. And of course, just as in other uprisings of this nature, there were reports of row homes being set afire with Black occupants trapped inside. So it seems like they always go for the 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 individuals who are in their homes just to make sure that the message gets across we don't want you here Mm -hmm. not let alone we don't yes we're going to physically harm you and we don't know what the stabbing situation was with the man that originally caused the issue but in new york the orphanage chester now we have the burning of row homes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and in my mind a stabbing and altercation between two individuals that's where it should have ended whoever did the stabbing should have been uh taken and and experienced justice but a four-day massacre and uh, a purge of black african-americans from their homes unconscionable and unnecessary now let's turn to july 19th 1919 that was part of that uh summer of um what we call the red summer and this was in washington dc when white mobs incited by the media attacked the african-american community in washington dc and uh, the Black African-American soldiers who were returning from World War One, And this wasn't unusual because uh, the white community often were intimidated by and in some respects insulted by seeing Black African-Americans in uniform. Now, the white mob was retaliating against an alleged assault of a white woman named Elsie Stefan- uh, Stefanik. 
and uh, a black man named Charles Rawls. The violence broke out Monday night between black Washingtonians armed for self-defense and the enraged white Washingtonians. Many of them were uniformed military men. Now, the violence went on for four days, and there was very lukewarm interest by the police to stop the mob. President Woodrow Wilson finally ordered nearly 2,000 soldiers from nearby military bases into Washington to suppress the violence. And uh, ultimately, there were 38 deaths and over 100 injuries suffered by individuals of both races. That is terrifying. Now, I am glad to hear at least another story where people were armed for self-defense. There is no, you know, there's never any good reason to attack anyone, but I believe in self-defense and these these military men were armed. Now, the massacre you're going to talk about next actually has a movie, one of my favorite movies. It's so hard to watch, even though it's one of my favorite with Ving Rhames. I think you're going to talk about Rosewood. Yep. You're exactly right, my dear niece, Rosewood, January 1st, 1923. Now, the Rosewood Massacre was the white supremacist destruction of a Black town, just like Tulsa and Slocum and other towns we've been hearing about. And uh, not only the destruction of the town, but the murder of many of its residents. Now, again... It was spurred by the false accusation of a white married woman who claimed to have been beaten by an unnamed black man. So a white posse formed on January 1st and the posse carried out lynchings of African-Americans and burned the town to the ground, wiping the all black African-American settlement off the map. Several buildings were set on fire just a few days after New Year's, and the mob wiped out the remainder of the town a few days later, torching 12 houses one by one. A crowd of up to 150 people watched the dozen homes and a church set ablaze. Even the dogs were burned. Now, the Rosewood Massacre, ironically, is one of the few, unlike Slocum and Tulsa, that resulted in reparations. A lawsuit was filed that eventually compensated elderly victims $150,000 each and created a scholarship fund. Now, the law, which provided $2.1 million for the survivors, uh, improbably made Florida one of the only states to create a reparations program for the survivors of racialized violence, placing it among federal programs that provided payments to Holocaust survivors and interned Japanese Americans. So this was historic and very historic since it happened in Florida. Yes, because we know that some some pretty bad things have happened in Florida. Now, do you have another one on your list, Dan Carroll? Because this list is growing longer and longer, and it's it's a sad list. It's like the saddest countdown of all time. It is. It is. And as I said, this was unnerving as we did this research. But uh, let me tell you about Catcher, Arkansas. On December 28, 1923, uh, the assault and murder of a white woman in the Catcher community in Crawford County quickly ignited a firestorm of racial hatred that within a span of a few days exploded into the murder of an innocent black man. Charges of night riding were leveled against 11 African Americans and the it resulted also in the exodus of at least 40 black families from Catcher. The two African-American men were sentenced to death and executed in relation to the murder, while a third was given a life in prison sentence following the trials of dubious uh, that included dubious evidence offered by the prosecution. And as a result of this uh, trial and as a result of this violence, Catcher became another one of the many sundown towns around the United States. And it's funny that they use the charges of night riding because not doing my, you know, studies of reconstruction, the reconstruction, the term night riding is normally contributed to the Klan. Mm-hmm. Normally it is. Normally it is. So I guess it was sort of a, a, a reverse. Of or let's norm. just use a term we know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We know how this works. Now, uh, we've we've heard about Slocum, Texas. Let's come back to Texas to the 1943 Beaumont, Texas race 
uh, violence. This erupted on June 15th and ended two days later. Starting on June 15th, a white woman in Beaumont said she had been raped by a black man. This trope we hear so many times. Now, learning of the charge, white workers confronted black African-Americans at the Pennsylvania shipyard and violence erupted. About 2,000 white workers joined by another 1,000 workers advanced on the jail where the suspects were held. Now, by the time they reached the jail, the mob numbered 4,000 people. Now, the woman was unable to identify any prisoner as her alleged assailant. But breaking into small groups, white mobs attacked and terrorized Black African neighborhoods near the jail in the central and north parts of the city and destroyed 100 homes. Now, that doesn't even make any sense. Now, this we know the trope of I was attacked, insert nameless Black man here. Now they bring the lady to the front and she doesn't even, she can't even pick the person out probably because she was not telling the truth. Not saying she wasn't assaulted, but I don't think that the, anybody in that group assaulted that lady. So the, the, they just went destroying and pillaging as well, since you couldn't find that black man will destroy a whole neighborhood. Well, that's pretty much what happened. It's almost like, well, we've got our weapons, we've got our torches, we might as well use them. Let's not waste this time. Not, not, let's not waste a torch. Yeah, yeah. Now, according to William Darity Jr., a Duke University economist, uh, economist who co-authored From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, he says that there have been upwards to 100 massacres uh, between the Civil War and the 1940s. It's, it's been just exhausting, Courtney, telling this history. And our listeners may be exhausted hearing it, but we have to talk about it. We have to talk about the fact that over 100 massacres took place in this country because history has been covered up for too long. So we're going to keep shining the light on the topic. And our next episodes are going to narrow in and focus in on uh, voter suppression, housing discrimination, labor injustices, and the massacres and violence perpetrated against Black African-Americans as a result. Well, and Carol, like you said, this is a very heavy, a very dark topic. But I, I want to let people know that it's not about bashing. It's about learning and about healing. And sometimes healing hurts. So we're going to breathe in healing and breathe out hate. And if you miss us in between episodes or want to know what we're doing online, please visit us at our website, which is www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it. <laughs>